Well, it's my great privilege to speak to you tonight concerning Christ's message to the church in Ephesus as preserved for our own understanding in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And this is the first of seven messages to the seven churches of of Revelation. And I think you will see that these messages are relevant for us today. And especially in light of the report that was made to us this morning, it's relevant to us. So let's turn to chapter 2 and read the message of Christ to the church at Ephesus and in a real sense to us as well. And I'm reading out of New American Standard today. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot endure evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Remember, but, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else. I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Well, each of these messages to the seven churches shows Christ's love and protection for his church. You need not ask, why does the church need protection? I might share a personal example that I've shared several times and And I hope you don't get weary of me sharing this because it changed my life some 18 months ago. It gave me a whole fresh understanding of our relationship with Christ, his care for the church, and his love especially for the church. When my beloved son-in-law who was co-pastor of one of the fastest-growing churches in Iowa, committed suicide at the beginning of the summer. It was on May 1st. We got that call the evening of May 1st at 7.10 in the evening to, to hear that he had committed suicide. Now, to say it was a major blow to his church and to his family 
is nothing but an understatement. I can't convey to you what a terrible blow it was. I had known D.B. for some 26 years, and he had been married for 18 years to my daughter. And it was found out within a matter of a week or two that he had had adulterous relationships in the last three years with women outside of his church. Now, the greatest danger in a terrible, terrible situation like that is to the testimony of Christ. It can cause doubt among the people who may not be strong in their faith. It can, it can make people think, well, maybe God doesn't have his hand upon this church. And that's really part of the lie that the enemy wants us to believe when something terrible happens. The enemy does not care about a church that is in the rear rank and is dead and is not working and living and impacting its community for Christ. He will just let them be. But let a church move itself to the forefront of the battle where the battle is the hottest. We will have a close battle with the enemy. And this is part of it. I can tell you now, 18 months later, that the church where he pastored and my daughter still remains as a faithful member is stronger and more faithful and more outreaching than it has ever been. The pastor said on that first sermon right after the Thursday when when Pastor Antrim was found in his car, is this will either make or break our church. He went on to say it will not break this church because we are going to draw close to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, my friends, that's always a good course of action when the enemy attacks. Well, the senior pastor told the church that morning, and I was sitting there with my daughter, that Pastor Antrim had believed a lie. He had believed that he could participate in the deeds of darkness without anyone finding out. He had believed that rather than repenting of his sins and being restored to Christ, it was better for him to take himself out of the way, to kill himself. And this was a lie straight from below. As James says, the wisdom from below. It was a lie from our adversary, a liar and the father of lies from the beginning. Well, an attack by our enemy may occur on a church in many different ways. It may be by deception. Sometimes it may come from uh, creating doubt in the minds uh, of some of the believers or those who are thinking about becoming believers. And in the case of Ephesus, it was diversion from their devotion to Christ. I might add, and I should have said this in the beginning, 
I didn't set this message up just because of uh, the report that we received this morning. Uh, Howard asked me to, to stand in for him on this passage of Scripture some three weeks ago. And actually, I have gone through this passage twice in the life of our church in the last 18 months in a series that I called Fighting the Good Fight of Faith. And I really haven't changed this message just for tonight, just because of the circumstances that we're in this evening. What I am sharing with you from the Word of God has application in our lives at any time, at any place actually in any church. And so I wanted to make that clear that this wasn't just a last minute put together just so that we could address the situation we're currently in. Well, each of the seven churches of the Revelation were planted squarely in the midst of darkness. A pagan society replete with false worship, hedonism, sexual debauchery, slavery, violence, and love for material gain. Sounds a lot like our society at at times, does it not? And the church of Ephesus was in that close battle with darkness. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, you know this verse well, Paul told the church at Ephesus this, as he closed out his letter to them in 610 of Ephesians. Finally, my brethren, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. I'll tell you what, a church in suburbia sometimes forgets that. But God will remind us Because he loves us and he wants to protect us because he does love us. Well, Ephesus was a provincial capital in the Roman Empire. And the one thing it was very proud of was standing right in the middle of the city was the Temple of Artemis. And this Temple of Artemis uh, was the center of the practice of idolatrous worship. Artemis, or Diana, according to Roman mythology, was the daughter of Zeus. And she was worshipped there. And I I will not soil your mind by describing the worship, but the priestess in the temple were prostitutes. And sexual uh, perversion was part of the worship there. It was an imposing structure. A football and a field and a half long, 450 yards long. A football field wide, almost 300 yards wide, and 60, me- 60 feet high with over 100 marble columns. It was a massive structure. 
and the entire city lived and did its work in the shadow of that temple. Yet the church at Ephesus thrived in the city. Paul had stayed in Ephesus for three years because of the strategic location of that church. While at Ephesus, he wrote his first letter to the Corinthians. He later sent Timothy to Ephesus after he left to be an elder there, perhaps the senior pastor. And he wrote two letters. First and second Timothy were sent to Timothy at Ephesus. Of course, Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesians, which has more to say about the the truth concerning the church of the Lord Jesus Christ than perhaps any other book in the Bible. John likely wrote his gospel there and wrote his three letters from there and wrote the revelation from nearby Patmos, which was not far from Ephesus. No matter how you look at the church of Ephesus, it was a major outpost in a world of darkness. Christ delivers his first message to the church at Ephesus. And in a sense, this letter is preserved for us. And we can take it as a word to us, to our church as well. Let's look at the first verse. Note how Christ introduces himself. He is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Now, some say that the seven stars are representative of angels. Some say it's pastors. I I tend to believing it's passengers. But in either case, they're messengers to the church at Ephesus. And why in the right hand? It shows that the church, the seven churches, are under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll tell you one other thing it shows. Those stars, those churches, those pastors are in his hand. It shows that he also has those churches under his protection as well as his authority. Jesus, speaking of his sheep in John 10:28, says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. And that's the best protection that we can have is to be held in the hand of Christ. And if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, that's where we are. And that's the best protection we can ever have in a world of darkness. We also see that Christ says that he is he who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And Howard shared with you last week that the lampstands are representative of the churches. And we note that he's among the churches. Christ is among us. He's in our midst, and, and so he is with our church. He is aware of our church. He is aware of how we live. He's aware of how we worship before him. There's nothing hidden from him about what goes on in this church. And he walks among us because he loves us and he cares for us and he will protect us. Well, second, look at Christ's intimate knowledge of the Ephesian church. 
in the latter part of verse 1 through verse 2. He says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they're apostles and are not and have found them liars. This was a hard-working church, a lot like Baraka. Worked out of homes. We don't know how big it was, but it was probably bigger than Baraka. But it was a hard-working church. And it was enduring a lot because it was taking its stand against evil which surrounded it. And thirdly, we see the commendation of this church by Christ. You have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. You know, a church can, particularly church leaders, can become very weary when they're standing against false teaching and evil. And it was pervasive in Ephesus. It wasn't just surrounding the church. We know from, from Paul's letter to Timothy that the evil and the false teaching had gotten inside the church and how weary that is to have that battle. Paul wrote to, in Corinthians 10.20, speaking to the church at Corinth, but also making application to the church at Ephesus. The Gentiles sacrifice, when the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. See, in, in school, we're taught about Greek and Roman mythology as if it's some, just some type of system of worship. But that whole system of worship, of worshiping Artemis and Zeus, it's demonic. It's satanic. And the, and the church was right there in the shadow of the temple. Paul also wrote to Timothy while he was at Ephesus. And he said uh, there would be those who would fall away. And they would begin giving heed to doctrines of demons. And so this church was right in the midst of of it. Still, this church was holding the banner of Christ high. Jesus commended them by saying, you are laboring for my name's sake. And that brings us to the admonition that he gives right after the commendation. Look in, in, in verse 4. The church had one one major failure that was worthy of note by Christ. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You have lost, you have left your first love. The Greek actually puts the emphasis on the love. Your first love you have left. The church, listen closely to this. When we do our duty for Christ, that is commendable. Christ commends that. When we have our doctrine straight and we attempt to live by our doctrine, that too is commendable and right. But church, 
if our devotion to Christ out of a heart of love is missing, we fall short of our calling in Christ. Faithfulness in our duty and doctrine is essential, but they're not enough. Devotion, love for Christ must be what moves us, what sustains us. Mark twenty-two thirty-seven. Jesus told us this. You shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest of the commandments. Jesus also said in John 14, 23 through 24, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me, I mean, he who does not keep my word does not love me. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the father who sent me. Now, if this sounds like keeping the word sounds like duty and doctrine and that's it. You might have missed Jesus' point. What he's keeping Jesus' words here actually means to take them to heart, to delight in his word, and, and, and see that this written word is not the end in itself, but it's the means by which the Holy Spirit enables us to draw near to Christ and to grow in our love for Christ. You can't do it apart from the words of God in Scripture. It's not just the feeling. If we had more time, I would show you in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 through 8, where Paul writes about the more excellent way, the way of love, and every statement about love is an action verb. It's Love is not just some sentimental feeling. It's taking delight. And, and, and having a heart of a devotion commitment to the one you love. Well, here's, here's the problem in Ephesus. They were laboring for Christ without having that heart of devotion for Christ. Duty and doctrine without devotion of the heart. Christ gives the remedy. He doesn't just identify the problem. He tells us what to do about it. And we see this in verse 5. And and Jesus says this. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works. Remember, repent, return. That you will see through all the seven letters in some form or another except for two, two churches. Remember, repent, and return. Three R's. Better than reading arithmetic. When the enemy is attacking Christ's church, whether it's a direct attack or the darkness of the world is pressing in, trying to destroy a church's witness, Christ does not command us to cast out demons. He does not command us to rebuke Satan. He says, remember, Repent and return to me. 
take our stand with him. That's the teaching of Ephesians 6 and 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So sixthly, in the latter part of verse 5b, we see a warning that Christ gives. The warning is out of love for the church, for the people in the church. It's not some harsh, critical warning. He he gives it for our own good. And here it is. I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from your place unless you repent. Now, whether you're an individual living a double life before God, or should we become a church that has lost our love for Christ, Christ says he will remove us. He will take us out. And these should be sobering words for those who play church, who think they can live one way and then claim to be a faithful person before Christ. There's another brief commendation here in verse 6. Jesus always mixes his commendation with his admonishment. Here he says again in verse 6, Yet this you have. You You hate the Nicolaitans which I also hate. Let me back up and put the emphasis on that. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He hates the sin. He didn't say he hates the sinner. And then as we contend against false teaching and we contend against wickedness in high places, we need to remember that, that we hate the sin, but we love the sinner. And as we become a church that impacts our community across the south side of Atlanta, when we're sharing the gospel, you really have to develop a love for unbelievers in order to share the gospel. And that's what Christ is saying here. Well, you know, Jesus, before he went to the cross, pulled the disciples together in the upper room. And just before he went out to the garden and was arrested, he told them that in the world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. You know, the promise that he gives here is to he who overcomes, I will grant the privilege, the right to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This promise of immortality is really 
what we need to remember that we all have as faithful believers. An overcomer is one who takes their stand with Christ against the darkness. You know, when Paul was met on the road to Damascus by Christ, you know what the commandment in in Acts 26 was to Paul as he recounted it? He says, I want you to go and turn people from darkness to light. That was the exact words of Christ. And as we share the gospel, we have to have a sense that's what we're doing. From darkness to light. And from the domain of the enemy, Satan, to the kingdom of Christ. And that's what sharing the gospel is about. And even though the enemy would like to press in on us, we can take our stand with Christ and we can, we can, we can shine the light of the gospel into our community, even in the midst of adversity. These are wonderful words of promise and protection by Christ as we do. And so I, I would conclude with these words, just, just as a summary of, of the heart of this teaching. As laboring for Christ is our duty. And we can have joy in it or we can see it as drudgery. Teaching and living by sound doctrine is our responsibility. But these are not enough. Our labor and life in Christ, for Christ, must be out of devotion for Christ. A devoted heart of love for Christ. If our heart has grown cold toward Christ in our labor for him, we must remember this. Remember the love we once had for him when we came to Christ. You remember when you first received Christ as your Savior and the joy that was in your heart? That's what Christ is saying. Go back to there. Remember that. And then he says, repent of your lack of love. Repent of the sin that has ensnared you. Repent of the life-dominating sin that has kept you from drawing close to Christ. Return to him. This is Christ's word to us. And to this we can say thank you, Lord Jesus, for his love for us, for his protection of us. Can you amen that? Amen.